拐杖，双拐杖，双拐杖，幺三八呼叫，幺三八呼叫，幺三八呼叫。我们那时的感觉，就是那种不知道过后会发生什么事的感觉。There was really a sense of well, we don't know what's going to happen。就是怕警察过后就会把我们抓了，就是这种不知所措的感觉。We don't know whether the police are going to be down here in the next five minutes and going to clear us out. We don't know whether we're going to be arrested. Or there is a real sense of unknowing and a real consciousness of well, what's the state going to do? I am your host Renee Liu. 29 years ago today, in the spring of 1989, students and intellectuals went to Beijing's Tiananmen Square to mourn the death of a communist leader, Hu Yaobang, who was seen as a reformer. The gathering soon evolved into a mass pro-democracy protest, with hundreds of thousands occupying the square. Shortly after the erection of the Goddess of Democracy, a 10-meter-tall statue built by the student protesters. The world watched as the People's Liberation Army opened fire on unarmed civilian protesters, and as tanks crushed the goddess, she was dead, lying together with those butchered youth. However, she was, and still today, remains the iconic artwork and focal point of the pro-democracy movement. In this podcast, we explore the Tiananmen Square massacre to delve deeper into the crushing of the goddess of democracy. And how China has sculpted an illusory peace 29 years on, where there are still attempts by the Chinese government to dim or even suppress the memory of these events. Part one, the goddess of democracy. Forty-two days into the protest and seven days after the declaration of martial law in Beijing, the student protesters knew they needed a new plan. The movement was losing its momentum, hanging on a thin thread. It lacked the cementing force to strengthen their call for democracy. The students needed a stand-in for themselves, a statue, a monumental work of art that would continue to assert their symbolic presence and their ideals. They needed something original. But apart from style, the students faced another problem. They had just three days to complete the statue. Zhao Jingyuan, a graduate student at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing, had witnessed the making of the Goddess of Democracy statue and retells the story in Jeffrey Wasserstrom's book, *Popular Protests and Political Culture in Modern China*. The original work was quite small; it was about half a meter, and it was made out of clay. The statue was grabbing a pole with two raised hands. Uh, they actually used the small statue as the basis for the higher and bigger goddess that would stand in the square. They adapted a bit the traits of the character, adapting the man's face to more feminine traits. The body was transformed with more feminine characteristics to change from a him to a her. So when they finished the、uh, the model for the goddess. They divided it in four horizontal sections. It was quite important to divide it in four parts because the statue was so huge. They made it out of styrofoam plastic, which is, as you know, quite light. So it'd be quite easy. Five or six students could easily transport it to the square. 
it's pretty clear that they used this work as an emergency, you know, they didn't take the time to come up with a full plan. It was really not the plan to have, to have such an admirable piece of art. In just three days, the whole statue was wired, plastered together, and the goddess of democracy was born. A slightly off-balance look, with two hands raised to hold its torch. She was envisioned to be a young woman, and there she stood at the center of the square, backed by the people as she bravely faced against the huge portrait of Mao hung on the gate. She challenged the whole socialist system. Dr. Marco Wan, Associate Professor of Law and Honorary Associate Professor of English at the University of Hong Kong, believes in the importance of arts, visual dimension, and logic. I think it's telling us something that the kind of more verbal dimension of the movement is not telling us. So there's a kind of visual logic. So, you know, it's telling us something that um, perhaps may not be explicitly articulated in the more formal formulations of the movement's aims. As the goddess stands tall, it announces to the whole world that a consciousness of democracy had awakened amongst the Chinese people. The CCP had reached the end of their road. The day of doom had already arrived, and a new era had begun. The goddess of democracy was dead. On June 4, 1989, with an iron fist, the Chinese Communist Party had cleared the square and drove its tank directly into the goddess. Four months after, the government finally made its response to the democratic movement during the 14th anniversary of the regime under the Chinese Communist Party. Standing on the very spot where the goddess of democracy once stood at the square is a new statue. Similar to the goddess, the new statue was all white. But instead of a woman, it showed a unity of a worker, farmer, soldier, and intellectual. And instead of a strong single figure holding up a torch lighting the path to democracy in China, the figures of the new statue were submissive. Their eyes and hands no longer raised, and expressionlessly they held each a steel rod, grain, a gun, a book, to signify the assigned duties of a worker, farmer, soldier, and intellectual under the socialist state. Part 2. Tiananmen Square To understand why the Chinese Communist Party responded to the student protesters the way they did, Part 2 of this podcast focuses on the location of the protest. So what was so special and important about Tiananmen Square as a location? To understand this, we need to turn back to a time in 1949, a time of great promise and possibility in China, as it saw the victory of the Communist Revolution and the birth of the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong. Mao's first plan of action was making Tiananmen Square the face of his new communist regime. 
Mao knew that to legitimate his regime would mean the fostering of a sense of continuity between China's past, present and future in a confined geographical space. This is why, when Mao came into power, Beijing's Tiananmen Square had quickly become the metaphoric body of the nation and the space for displaying state power. Not only did the square become the official national emblem, seal and the postage stamp of China, it was and still is where all major national events occur at and where the most important state-sponsored monumental objects are housed. At the north of the square is a large portrait of Mao hung on the gate. At the center stands the Monument of People's Heroes. At the east, the Great Hall of the People. At the west, the Museum of Revolutionary History. And at the south, the Chairman Mao Memorial Hall and Mao's Mausoleum. So it is clear that from the beginning, Tiananmen Square was envisioned as a symbol of greatness of the Chinese Communist Party and the face of the People's Republic of China. Now fast forward back to the June 4, 1989 student movement. It becomes really clear that Tiananmen Square was much more than just a backdrop to a political drama, but a container of political practice. It was much more than a fight for democracy, but a battle in the war of space and monuments at Tiananmen Square. It was about how the student democracy movement had took ownership of the square and how the Communist Party ferociously took that ownership back. Dr. Daniel Matthews, an assistant professor of law at the University of Hong Kong, spoke about how the students managed to take ownership of the square by changing its atmosphere. And an atmosphere depends on the manipulation of the senses, all the senses. So things sound differently, things even smelt different. The lack of traffic fumes, for instance, was striking. And the sonic escape was different with the hum and chatter of people not being drowned out by traffic. The students had also transformed the existing monuments at the square, decorating them with banners to express their political aims. For example, the Monument of People's Heroes was transformed into a personal shrine for students to commemorate Hu Yaobang, decorating it with white flowers and a huge banner reading, Long Live the People. So the square now had an atmosphere like a glass house, like it's a bubble that's been created. It was like you were kind of in a different place, you know, and you'd forgotten the life of the city outside it. And so it had formed its own kind of sphere of influence and how distinct they were from the normal life of the cities. It's almost like the, the city had been forgotten. This was true as revealed by the autobiographical writings of the student leaders, who at the time imagined a short-lived public sphere established at the square during the protest, away from the control of the state. There, the student protesters propagated the ideals of democracy by circulating posters, printing underground newspapers and setting up public speech stations. So in much the same way Mao had used Tiananmen Square to legitimize his regime, the power and legitimacy of the student movement rests on their ability to appropriate the space in the square and transform it in ways which articulate their own political vision. Therefore, when the students finally added their own monument, the goddess of democracy to the square, it completely changed the square's existing spatial structures and political significance. 
it was the final act to fully occupy the sacred face of the People's Republic of China, which the Chinese state saw as a direct challenge to the state's monopoly over the iconography of the square and the country, seeing it as necessary to clear up its face with force. Part 3. The Rebirth of the Goddess in Hong Kong What the Chinese government had failed to realize at the time of the protests is that the destroying of the goddess was predicted and intentional. From the beginning, some student leaders had already predicted the brutal outcome of the protests but believed that only their blood could provoke the Chinese people and inspire further struggle. So when the students built the goddess, they foresaw her smashing into pieces and actually intended for it to happen so that it would expose the government's anti-democratic faces. So in a way, the students had intended to carry out some kind of planned suicide where the goddess had to be destroyed. It was the only way to influence the future. Her monumentality was also to be derived from her self-sacrifice. This means that when the tanks crushed her, she became separated from all the other pre-existing state-sanctioned statues built to represent the end of a revolution and the beginning of a permanent order under the Chinese Communist Party. But since the fight for democracy in China is far from being over, the goddess could not be a permanent statue. She had to become a martyr. But unlike those murdered protesters, her image could be replicated. And through replication, she could be reborn. This is why, 29 years after June 4, the Chinese government continues to suppress any memories of the event within China. My brother always tells me a very uh, striking story about when he was a student at the University of Exeter. And at the University of Exeter, there is a commemoration to the June 4th incident. And he was friends with a Chinese student who was studying there. And the Chinese student was saying, well, what, what is all this about? He's saying, oh, well, it's, the Tian it's about commemorating the Tiananmen Square events. And he said, what, what do you mean about Tiananmen Square? I know about Tiananmen Square, but what about the events? Well, I mean, I don't know what happened on June 4th. You know, what, are, what, is, what are you talking about? Therefore, the Chinese government has and still systematically excludes any discussion of June 4th from its public realm. However, Hong Kong... China's last corner of free speech, presents a very different trajectory. Since its reunification with China in 1997, Hong Kong was promised some level of autonomy as a special administrative region. This includes the freedom of press, speech and assembly. It is in Hong Kong where a replica of the goddess currently stands. So thinking about the significance of June 4th in Hong Kong, there are candlelight vigils in Hong Kong every June 4th. And, you know, thinking about people's reaction back in 1989, I mean, there was displays of solidarity with people in China, with the people who were affected by the Tiananmen Square incident in China. So there was a real kind of connection between the people in Hong Kong and, and the people in China at the time. That was kind of sentiment. The events in 1989 were an enormous catalyst for mass support for the emerging pro-democracy or democratic parties in Hong Kong because people saw very, very clearly what the CCP was capable of doing. 
And so that really did inspire a, a widespread kind of sympathy for the pro-democracy movement. And that was expressed clearly in the early LegCo elections where pro-democracy parties, where they are directly elected, won 17 out of 18 seats initially. And that trend has generally continued, although things are changing a little bit now. The other thing I'd say is that all of the, the democratic parties that were formed in the 1980s and 1990s had as their goal the democratization of China, not simply the democratization of Hong Kong, but the democratization of China. And they saw themselves as being part of a broader pro-democracy movement across China and therefore were tied directly to the June 4th events and will have had comrades and colleagues who have been involved in those events and would see their political ambitions as being directly tied to the ambitions of the Tiananmen Square movement. So even if the outcome of the June 4th movement was a failure, the fight for the democratization of China is not yet over. After all, the Chinese word for crisis, Weiji, is made up of the words Wei, to mean danger, and ti to mean opportunity. 